0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon and welcome to the Australian and New Zealand Studies on the New Books Network. To begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land in which I live and pay my respects to the elders past, present and future. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Meredith Lake and we're talking about her new book, the 2020 edition of The Bible in Australia, published by New South Press, which is part of UNSW, the University of New South Wales. Meredith is an historian, broadcaster, and an award-winning writer interested in how Australians understand the big questions of faith and meaning. She currently hosts Soul Search on ABC Radio National, which is also available as a podcast, which is a weekly show about the lived experience of religion and spirituality. She has also guest presented on ABC television's Compass, which you should also be able to find by looking around. The back of the book says, In this surprising and revelatory history of the Bible in Australia, Meredith Lake gets under the skin of a text that's been read, wrestled with, preached, tattooed, and believed to be everything from a resented imposition to the very word of God, The Bible in Australia explores how, in the hands of Bible bashers, immigrants, suffragists, evangelists, unionists, writers, artists, and indigenous Australians, the Bible has played a contested but defining role in this country. Well, good afternoon, Meredith, and thank you for coming in.
1: What a pleasure to be with you, Bede.
0: Now, the first question I would like to ask is well, the first thing is to tell us a little bit about yourself and then how this book came about.
1: Well, there are a few versions of that story. <laughs> As you, I think most people of one kind or another have a bit of baggage or history, so to speak, with a text like the Bible. Um, I think my own connection to this subject comes from the family that I grew up in, but also the place. Where I grew up. I grew up on the northern edge of Sydney near a national park. And my dad was a geography teacher, and I spent a lot of my childhood bushwalking, picnicking, riding my bike down fire trails in the bush. And he would always point out, um, you know, middens, rock carvings, anything that spoke to the deeper history of the place where we lived. And Actually, as a kid, that really annoyed me. I didn't really want dad's little lessons as we were out and about. But as I've grown up, the question of what does it mean to be an Australian, to live in this place, but also what does it mean to grow up Christian in a land that, before my ancestors arrived here, had a long, long Indigenous history, uh, that question has become more and more present and sharp to me. Uh, On the Christian side, my upbringing was. I mean, very, um, I mean, let, let's put it this way. I got very heavy doses of the Bible in my childhood. I attended school religious education classes, even in a, a public school, which is common in New South Wales. I was sent to Sunday school. My family was always part of church communities. Um, and even around my dinner table growing up, we'd say grace before we eat, but also learn like memory verses, like commit to memory little verses from the Bible which my parents would have on flashcards for us to memorise, which I realise now is not typical of, you know, 1980s suburban Sydney, but that was my experience. And I guess what it meant is I grew up with, I guess, the question of how to be a Christian in this place, uh, but also a sense of the Bible as something that can be weaponized, and I think we see that for political purposes, it can be used as a tool of oppression, but it can also be a devotional text, something that transforms a person. And I saw that in my own parents and the way they encountered it. So I guess I had a sense of the, the potential rich, richness of the, of the of the book, but also the, um, the questions that are a bit unresolved by the way that it's been taken up in a settler society like Australia. And I mean, those are fascinating questions to me that I think are, pose even larger questions for our nation today
0: excellent i was more a night rider and tj hooker in 21 jump street 1980s child rather than the bible cards at the dinner table <laughs> but nonetheless i would like to begin by asking my question is going to hone in on what the bible is and some of the concepts i'd like to raise and ask you to comment on uh it's often thought of as a single book but it's a collection of books and then there are various translations and then the catholic bible differs from the protestant bible by having the apocryphal books collected in it so in how would you describe what the bible is and can we actually speak of a bible common to all even mainline christian denominations
1: that is a really wonderful question and gets right to the heart of what i was trying to do in this book which was to take a word like bible which on one level, like you can look it up in the dictionary and get a one sentence definition. It's the holy scriptures of the Christian religion or a copy of those scriptures and interrogate that from a historical point of view, because as you suggest, Bible means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And even if you start to look at the object, you can see that it has a history that's not incidental to what's in it or how it's read and used, but absolutely core to that. So for instance, these days, a lot of people might have a Bible app on a smartphone and read it by scrolling, which is actually a very, very old form of reading, right? It goes back to the pre-Codex period. Other, you know, I went down to the State Library here in Sydney and looked at the, the Bible that James Cook ostensibly brought with him on his Pacific voyages, which is You know, you don the white gloves, you walk in, you read it on a special pillow to support the binding. It's four kilograms. It's a King James version. It's elaborately illustrated, sometimes not just with biblical scenes, but with scenes from British monarchical history. It's a product of the Protestant Reformation with a a timeline down the side dating the the creation of the world in Genesis to 4004 BC. Like it's loaded with a particular view of the world and the history of particular people. And then again, you might look at the Creole Bible, which was the first full Bible to be published in an Indigenous Australian language. That wasn't uh, released until 2007, which again speaks to the long history of Bible translation, but also the slow history of Bible translation in a place like Australia compared to the South Pacific, um, and the very complex negotiations of settler and Indigenous communities that were behind a book like that. So you're right. Like Bible, can one word Bible sum up the app Cook's Bible, the Creole Bible? In a sense, of course it can't. But what I wanted to do was keep in view the very instability of the term and invite people to think historically and contingently about something that is often take it as, taken as quite static, as self-evident, uh, when actually I wanted to foreground materiality, contingency, and the way the Bible's been used. This is really a book about what people have done with the Bible and the interpretations they've drawn from it and how that's played out as a dynamic in culture.
0: Thank you. Now, staying with the Bible for a moment, in going through your book, there were three or four concepts that I came across, and I'd like you to comment on. There's the concept you often refer to called what's known as the theological Bible, there is also the cultural Bible, which is referred to at some parts. And then is also a what's known as the devotional Bible. And sometimes you draw a distinction between thinking of the cultural Bible as a cultural object and something like the theological Bible or the devotional Bible as a sacred object. So could you comment on those different senses of the Bible?
1: These are terms that I, I guess, reached for as a way of keeping in view the different uses and modes of the Bible. Um, So in the introduction to the book, I set out three main handles. Um, There are others that you mentioned I could have used, like the Social Bible or maybe the Political Bible or the Devotional Bible. I went for the Globalising Bible because I wanted to keep in view that the Bible obviously isn't organic to this place, to Australia. It doesn't emerge initially from communities here. It was brought here as part of a globalising movement of people, of commerce, of empire. And that globalising quality, if you like, is a really important part of its cultural implications here in Australia. So that was kind of one term that I used uh, to kind of keep that in view. Then the cultural Bible, as you mentioned, I think we're quite familiar with this idea. We hear prime ministers, be they, you know, former prime minister Tony Abbott or his nemesis Julia Gillard, both of them. Referred in public to the Bible as a text of Western civilization, as something that even if people don't consider it to be somehow a divine word, that has an, a cultural import that's been uh, quite transformative for settler society in Australia. Except that one of the things I learned writing this book is that idea of the Bible as a, a treasure trove of cultural riches is itself a product of the Enlightenment, of of the response of European scholars to new biblical criticism. Uh, to new ideas about a divine authority and revelation. And so even that idea of the Bible as a British text or as a European text and something to be valued in cultural terms rather than theological one comes from a period that roughly coincides with its transmission to Australia. So I, I wanted to kind of situate something like that. And then the theological Bible, as you mentioned, is a very important category But it's quite hard to write about. Uh, It's quite hard to discuss in a secular age like the one we live in. But one of the reasons that I think the Bible has been so influential is because, of course, it's been treated as a sacred text. That is something that reveals not just humanity to itself, but um, God or the divine to humanity. And that means that whole communities, whole institutions, whole societies at certain times in history have tried to bend themselves in some way to what they take to be the meaning of the Bible. I mean, if you think about, say, the plays of Shakespeare, which would be the nearest rival probably historically for a a literary text that circulated among Australians that people have had to study in school, or, you know, maybe they've been to see a play or something like that. The language of Shakespeare has infiltrated the English that we still speak. We still use many of his phrases in our common lingo, just as we do the Bibles. But Nobody's really out there trying to adopt the Shakespearean vision of morality or of society or to transform the world around them in step with how they understand uh, a certain play or character, whereas for the Bible they absolutely have and to some extent some people still do, which means that the way people interpret the text as a word from God, whatever they take that to mean, can be hugely potent for their social activism, as well as their interior life. And that that dynamic, I think, needs to be part of any estimation or evaluation of why such a complex and contested text uh, is still part of the arguments we have explicitly or implicitly in our society today.
0: Now, keeping with that theme again, a concept that I found in your work was the Bible being used as a political tool, even if the people using the Bible might not have been aware of that. So examples are given about missionaries coming through Australia, and there were missionaries for lots of Indigenous people and Indigenous places. And they, I imagine, were there in good faith to try and spread their Christian good news. But it also assisted the government. And I think you make make these points in your book by things like creating welfare, um, bringing creating a a a homogenous society of of civilising, in inverted commas, people. And so the government got the advantage of having the people within the bounds of the nation brought together, and the Christians had the advantage of being able to spread their word. So could you comment on the Bible being used as a political tool?
1: Well, that's a huge and, I think, unresolved question of massive significance to the ongoing task of real reconciliation in this country. And I know you've raised this topic with other authors on this channel before. It's really hard to distill into a simple answer. In the early colonial period, though, one of the big debates that both missionary, European missionary societies and colonial governments were having was about the relationship of what Europeans took to be civilization and the role in that of what they called Christianisation. Some argued that you needed to, so so to speak, Christianise and civilisation would follow. Others argued that you needed to, so to speak, civilise or conform to a European mode of, way, uh, mode of being and then introduce what they took to be the central tenets of Christianity. And that was actually a major debate that raged through the early decades of the 19th century and different missionary establishments, different government policies um, navigated that question in different ways. I think one of the things we need to keep in view is that there was more than one agenda among Europeans in relation to Indigenous people. Not all of them were to do particularly with the spread of Christianity. We have to remember that this is also a movement of massive dispossession. At the end of the day, fundamentally, the creation of settler societies depended upon, even presumed, the displacement of the society that pre-existed in that place. There had to be modification, sometimes outright destruction. And the way the Bible was taken up by different protagonists in that um, series of changes and events, I mean, it's, it's very, very varied. The Bible, of course, comes with Europeans, sometimes missionaries, sometimes government officials, sometimes people who would rather have left the Bible behind in Europe and forged a different kind of society here in Australia. And sometimes the Bible crosses that cultural boundary and is taken up by Indigenous people who then interpret it and reapply it to the challenge of living in a colonised place in their own ways, with their own theologies. And we see examples, too, of Indigenous people using the Bible to critique white settler society. So the political use of the Bible can cut in many different directions. I mean, I think there was a tendency for it to be read particularly by settlers in ways that advanced and protected their own interests as colonists. But that's not the whole story. There are also, I mean, fascinating cases going right back to the 1830s of Indigenous people reading the Bible and seeing something uh, in it that challenged the conceits or even the heresies of a kind of a white Christianity. And that that to me is what made the story of the Bible here different, say, to the story of the Bible in Aotearoa, New Zealand, or in another place of the, in the South Pacific, that that was something I wanted to foreground, not to flatten out or to say there's a simple answer here, but to open up as a very important and unresolved and I think still challenging question for our society in the aftermath of, you know, the Uluru statement and the invitation to reconciliation that we find there.
0: As this discussion progresses, one matter I'm going to start probing about concerns the role of society and the role of the Bible and which which way the influence goes or which way the influence goes most strongly. And one question, an early question I'd like to ask about that is: you have a section in your book about the, the, the Australian or well, the, the British idea of terra nullius, which is the idea of the, that Australia was an empty wasteland that the British could turn up on a ship one day and say, thank you, that's ours, and it became theirs. And the you make a, a point in the book that this notion came from John well, John Locke, is one of the philosophers, political philosophers, who is said to have created this or supported this notion of the empty land and the possession of land or ownership of land comes by improving the land, doing some work on the land. And you comment that there's some support in Genesis from that. Now, the part I'd like you to comment on is, in that understanding, is Genesis used, do you think, as a way just to an add on to support that doctrine? Or would Genesis have been the driving force behind the doctrine? So in other words, is the Bible used to say, well, we can also legitimize this via the Bible? Or would something like the Bible, do you think, be driving a notion like Terranulius?
1: Oh, B, there's so many. I mean, it's a really important and interesting question, but in a way we'd have to go right back to a theology of, does the Bible have its own agency? Which is a theological question. I mean, some people who take it to be God's word would say, well, yes, it's a living word that does act, so to speak, on, on the world, on society, on people, whereas a lot of other readers would say, no, it's dead letter and the the agency comes from the people who read it and interpret it. Um, so in a way there's a theological question behind the one that you've asked. But approaching the question more as a historian, I'm not a theologian, I think to go back to John Locke who wrote in his second treatise on government, as you mentioned there, a kind of a defence of, of the idea of property that was very influential in the way Europeans and particularly, particularly the British understood their relationship to colonized lands. When he was writing, the Bible was for many Europeans kind of, because it was backed by this long history of acceptance, as in some sense, the word of God, the Bible was the text that Europeans calibrated all their other kind of knowledge with. So that timeline I mentioned in Cook's Bible, Cook's copy of the Bible that dated, you know, um, the creation of the world to 4004 BC. Like we look at things like that now and go, what a preposterous denial, religious denial of clear science. Whereas in Cook's time and certainly in John Locke's time, the idea of an old earth wasn't the common knowledge of European scientists and people like um, Isaac Newton and I think Johannes Kepler had come up with very similar calculations as the archbishop whose dates are included in those Bibles. And so whether it was political philosophy, as in John Locke's case, or natural science, as in the case of people like Newton, um, the Bible was integral to the way, it was a kind of a reference point because they they thought it revealed the truth about the whole world in all its aspects, not just the truth of, you know, the character of the divine or something. And so I think it's almost impossible to unpick what's the Bible, what's kind of, um When does it legitimate something as a kind of a cynical add-on, and when is it kind of something more foundational to a particular argument like Locke's view on property? Uh, In the period we're talking about, it's a much more saturating text. But the effect, absolutely, is to give a kind of divine endorsement to particular ideas that very clearly, in this case, privilege the intentions of European colonisation, settler colonialism in a place like Australia. Uh, So Locke, for example, wasn't trying to distill what does the Christian scripture say about land ownership and who who might rightly occupy land. He was articulating a theory of property that referenced the Bible. And that's a subtle difference but really important because later to overthrow, um, well, a, a falsity like nullius. some of the k- plaintiffs in the Marbo case, which was the famous legal case that achieved that, actually drew from the Bible, read in a Torres Strait perspective to say, quoting from the Book of Proverbs as the plaintiff uh, Father Dave Passy did, that you shall never move an everlasting boundary stone. So some of those Christian Torres Strait Islanders who were involved in supporting those arguments found in the same scriptures that Locke read, uh, you know, arguments precisely to the contrary of nullius, which is why who's reading the Bible, what are they doing with it, and whose interests does it serve, is such a critical question. It's not enough to say what does the Bible say, because that that can't be answered simply. We need to keep interpretation and context in view. Um, and these were the things that really fascinated me, because I think the Bible is too often discussed as something straightforward or self-evident when it really Like we only have to look at our own history to see that there's a lot more to the story.
0: Yes, and the book brings that out very clearly with so many examples in so many different contexts, one of which I would like to ask for your views on now. Things seem to start changing in Australia in relation to the Bible and how society relates to it from about the mid to the late 1800s. And there's two two events, and I just want you to comment on these. The first is you you explain how the government put in place programs that allowed the four main churches, Methodists, Presbyterians, Catholics, and Anglicans, to build churches around the place. And if you go to any Australian city or town, you will see a lot of churches. Then that seems to coincide with a growth in Christianity and a growth in religious observance and the and the the government saying this is a good way to live. Equally, about the same time, Charles Darwin's book comes out, and that also seems to start opening up a divergent streak in how the Bible is viewed and how Christianity is viewed, because it forces people to actually start thinking, how are we really going to reconcile the timeline you've just referred to in Captain Cook's diary with this now what appears to be much more irrefutable evidence? And so some churchmen start trying to make the Bible consistent with Darwin. So do you see this period of time as being a period of growth and the beginning of a divergence or a beginning of a more liberal thinking about how you read the Bible?
1: This period, this middle period of the 19th century, I found absolutely gripping to read about. And that's partly because, as you say, it is, I think, the period of peak Bible literacy, circulation, um, socialisation in Australian history. Even things like the invention of industrialised printing, which is a 19th century of invention up there with the steam train, the ballot box, that kind of industrialisation of printing means that you can produce a Bible cheaply, quickly and transport it somewhere else in the world in a way that has never been true in the history of Christianity up to that point. So the Bible in the mid-19th century becomes a mass object for the first time. And that's that's true here in Australia, but it's true um, in in all the the so-called kind of Christianised lands or where Christianity is a majority religion. Um, And with that comes all the infrastructural support for it as a sacred text, the growth of churches, as you mentioned, which uh, here in Australia is confined largely to those four large denominations because they have Kind of the sanction of government approval and the subscription of a large proportion of the colonists, um, and the socialisation of people into a familiarity with at least parts of the text, even if they're not among the forty percent or so of people who did attend church. Um, if you opened a local newspaper at that time, and there were hundreds of newspapers across Australia in the the second half of the nineteenth century, uh, it would be normal to see the report of your local Bible Society auxiliary group. Um, your local charity, uh, your Sunday school, um, annual picnic. Uh, Sometimes the sermons of the local bishop would be reprinted in full, like the language of the Bible was woven into how journalists discussed issues of the day. It was kind of a point of common reference. Uh, But as you suggested in your question, Bede, I guess that familiarity with the Bible didn't produce or even reflect a sense that, well, this is obviously what it might mean or its status and authority. Um, I would say that the contest over the Bible, how you read it and what authority it might have predates this period and kind of the Darwinian revolution, so to speak. I would say that even when the first cargo of Bibles was unloaded from that first British fleet in 1788, that was the high point of the European Enlightenment in many ways. Um, There was already huge debate and contest among Europeans over the Bible and whether it was a universal divine word that made a claim on every life on the planet or whether it was a more confined, um, you know, cultural text that might be relevant to a European community but maybe not more broadly, that debate was already raging in Cook's own day, but certainly by the 19th century and with the discovery of an old earth, the idea that not only geologically is there a longer tale here than those old timelines suggest but that that might have opened up space for something like a mutability of species, which is what Darwin's work really addressed. Those kinds of questions that humanity maybe wasn't as fixed or as static as once thought. That the the narratives of creation in Genesis maybe shouldn't be read so literally. Those kind of things were, um, in a way, they weren't new among the intelligentsia, but they were they were having they achieved a popular cut through in that late nineteenth century. That made the Bible the focus for really intense and for some people quite titillating um, public debate. So, if you went downtown in Melbourne in about 1880, you would, you know, probably hear public debates between secularists and religionists, um, uh, lectures on these themes. There were touring speakers who might be they might be spiritualists or secularists, or they might be evangelists or preachers. But this was the kind of thing that made up. The entertainment, almost, of middle-class Melbourne and Adelaide, particularly among kind of urban men, that was that was the, all the rage. It's what people debated at their dinner parties. And so, even at a time when skepticism is going mainstream, in a sense, that actually made the Bible more central to colonial discourse than kind of uh, something a bit more relaxed. And I think that that's why I called this period the Great Age of the Bible, because not because it was agreed upon, but precisely because it was so visible. And whatever people believed or took it to mean, it was a reference point for all kinds of debates and conversations.
0: Thank you. The next part I'd like to focus on is the Bible and social reform. And it's mm. one part of – one in a section of the work you put forward a, a theory – or not a theory, but a way in which some of these this develops, how social reform come about because of people's views of the Bible – and this seems to be where there's general social adherence to the fact that the Bible has some form of truth. And as I understood the point made in the book, it was said that there's a broad orthodox approach amongst the majority of Christians is found in the text that's relevant to a social issue. And then that can be popularized in some way, which can then lead to a social reform that doesn't just attract people who adhere adhere to the Bible in a theological sense but is attractive to all ears and that itself then can lead to a social change and the benefit for the Christian communities are that the society changes consistently with the Bible. So an example might be not working on Sundays, having laws that say you don't trade on a Sunday. Can you comment on the way in which the Bible was used to actually foster some sort of social changes?
1: Well again Maybe I'd use slightly different language to the Bible fostering something. I think I would talk more in terms of the Bible being the dialogue partner for a community that's trying to, you know, address a question like an emerging economy and the rights of capital and labor. You know, so something like, how do you care for the poorest in your community? Some people, uh, many of them were evangelical Christians at the time read the Bible and found in it uh, an inspiration to charity, a kind of a charity model of addressing poverty. And they created some of the earliest and some of the most enduring charities that still exist in Australia today. Others read the same text uh, and were inspired to form banks. So Westpac was the first bank and it was founded by many of the same people who founded the Bible Society here in Australia in 1817. A generation later, a very um, particular group of leading Protestant citizens uh, came up with um, an insurance association that's now known as AMP and still exists today, the idea being that you provide for the poor by providing means for them to pull together and save to provide for themselves. And so um, there's an idea in Galatians, a New Testament book, you know, Bear Ye One Another's Burdens. And then a generation later, again, you get someone like William Guthrie Spence, the Presbyterian turned Methodist, the founding secretary of the Australian Workers' Union, um, he says <laughs> very famously in a speech he made to, uh, in relation to the new unionism that, that you know, Jesus says nothing in favour of thrift. He's quite impatient with the kind of the bank and saving kind of model of charity and says what we need is wage justice and he can point to a line in Luke's Gospel that says a worker is worthy of his hire. And so once you get to the late 19th century, you have all these institutions, charities, banks, mutuals, Unions that are all, none of them are produced by the Bible per se, but people who are familiar with aspects of its ethical teaching act in ways uh, that are consistent with what they understand its implications to be. Um, Once that kind of gets, I guess, stretched onto a national canvas, I mean, a great example of the complexity but also the significance of this we see with the harvester judgment, which is what establishes the basic wage for. Uh, skilled working men in Australia. It's a landmark in the development of industrial relations here in Australia. And the judge who uh, oversees it uh, has kind of left behind his Methodist childhood. Uh, He's been on the the speaking circuit as someone who's sceptical of um, overreach, we might say, of the way the churches treat the Bible as a divine and inspired word. But he's been reading the Pope's encyclical on the rights of capital and labour from the 1890s and draws on that tradition of Catholic social teaching um, to develop an idea of the basic wage as something that needs to provide for a man, his wife and his three children in reasonable and frugal comfort. And so that becomes uh, a plank of the new industrial arbitration system that lasts in Australia right through to the 1980s. Uh, And that, Like it's, it's indirect. It's not, you can't say again that the Bible gave us the basic wage, but that in this kind of complex and really layered um, way, someone who might not be signed up anymore as a particularly devout Christian, like, like judge, like the judge can in dialogue, profound dialogue with Christian teaching on social ethics drawn from the Bible, come up with a lasting piece of social infrastructure that's shaped generations of lives. And and, and I just think that it's, hard, it's in a way are you drilling down into something too complicated to matter or is this actually what I'm trying to do is bring to the surface um, that the Bible's not the sole property of the churches and even when it's not considered as a sacred text, it can have huge lasting implications for the particular form of institutional arrangements that sometimes we still live
0: with. Thank you. Another part of the book. A similar theme, which I found particularly enjoyable. But I want to make sure I've got the right wavelength of what you were trying to communicate. Concerns the Bohemian writers. yeah, and these are, and it also refers to people like Henry Lawson, and a lot of passages in your book. Henry Lawson, wrote, well, he wrote a lot of great short stories, including one called "The Drover's Wife," which just has the mm-hmm. the burden, the loneliness, and burden of a of a lady on a, in a farmhouse with the children, and that seems to be almost some of the the social reformers were addressing situations like that. But in any case, the these bohemian writers, they seem to me to use the idea of hypocrisy to shine, to say to Christians that here's your book, your book says this, but you're not doing this. Why don't you start doing this? And the, what I would love for you to comment on is a lot of these bohemian writers writers didn't seem to be practising Christians, or certainly not mainline practising Christians. And it's almost as though they say, well, here's the cultural cachet of the Bible. I'm going to adopt that in my writing to force the people who actually believe in the Bible to really start thinking seriously about trying to change their ways. Could you comment on that?
1: I'm really glad you enjoyed that part of the book. I found that some of the most enjoyable sections to write. And that it's an iconic um, phase, I think, of Australian storytelling about the formation of a national character. I mean, this kind of late 19th century, early 20th century period was one when questions about what kind of nation would this be, what kind of society would emerge, was there such thing as an Australian type and what were, and it was always his, but what were his characteristics were, I mean, there are things we can kind of rattle off almost a bit cynically now, but we're live and, um, and not cynical questions at all for that time. And I think we often, um, at least on a popular level, think about the story of the nation and national character as some kind of tussle between the religious and the secular. Um, and we get wonderful words that come out of that sense of tussle, words like Bible basher, wowser. These were all kind of some of the opprobious slang that emerges from precisely this period of Australian history. But part of what I wanted to do, is, you're kind of gesturing at, is show that at least to some extent, the debates of that era are not the r- religious versus secular so much as competing readings of, or, or informed by competing readings of the same scriptural text uh, so there were the wowsers and the kind of the moral reformers who often were temperance types, um, women suffragists, people who wanted to campaign against what they called the demon drink, restrain the liquor trade. Um, they were kind of anti-gambling, um, anti-horse racing, that kind of that kind of crowd, but who also sometimes were leading advocates not only for votes for women but for pensions for the aged and that kind of cluster of social reforms. There was that group that had an idea, and this is drawing from the Book of Proverbs in, in the Christian Old Testament, uh, that righteousness is what was what made a nation great. And this was one of the conceits of kind of Victorian Britishness, that, that somehow the success of the British Empire and its colonies, economically speaking, militarily speaking, was related to its righteousness, to its godliness. It's, you know, the fact that people kept the Sabbath and didn't drink and all those kinds of things. And so the kind of wowser moral reformism of that period Um, drew huge energy from a particular idea of how, you know, um, righteousness and nationhood might come together, which is very important for that stream of moral reformism. But it's countered on the other side by the kind of the radical bohemian set who are like very impatient with attempts to restrain the liquor trade, who are like, come on, let us go to the beach and kiss our girlfriends and, you know, put a few dollars on the horses and just, you know, lighten up you lot. You know, there's that kind of um, they're very anti-clerical much more about the life of pleasure, um, but also often associated with a sense of the need to support the welfare of the working class. So someone like Henry Lawson is a great example of this kind of mode, intolerant of wowsers and yet deeply committed to kind of the welfare of the working poor, um, whether that's a, a woman in, the, in her shack in the bush like in The Drover's Wife or the urban working man in a poem like Faces in the Street. Um, Henry Lawson is not a Christian um, his mother had left Methodism and turned to spiritualism. He'd attended a spiritualist Sunday school. So um, at the very fringe of kind of unorthodox Protestantism perhaps, but definitely not a church goer or identifying as a Christian in that sense. But he, um, I think, drew on a sense of or an image that was increasingly popular of Jesus of the Gospels as the kind of the Christ of the underdog, the friend of the prostitute, the friend of the drunkard, the friend of the poor. And and that kind of image of Jesus as the working man's friend, we see that in a number of his poems, Christ of the Never, um, the, the the story about the Catholic uh, priest, um, the Bush funeral, that story, um, and this idea that there was that the Wowsers had missed something by 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 treating Jesus as some kind of (laughs) middle-class temperance guy, and that actually he was in the gutter with the down and out and that that was true Christianity. So I would say that some of the the debate over what does good moral reform involve wasn't, as I said, religious versus secular, but competing readings of what are the implications of the biblical text for how you make a nation better? Um, Is it by a kind of legalistic righteousness or is it by a solidarity with the suffering? And they're both, to some extent, biblical um, readings, but they run in different directions and suggest different priorities for social change. And so I wanted to frame that, that period, the decades either side of federation, as one where um, questions of biblical interpretation and Christian ethics were not always explicit, but were absolutely um, integral to questions of flourishing nationhood.
0: Thank you. Now, you have a section on federation. The federation debates the creation of the Australian Constitution just before and and just over the turn of the century. And a point that I found interesting is you explain the inclusion of of words, biblical words as sort of preambles and and that, that type of thing in a lot of these documents. And I imagine a fair bit of that had to do with social convention. But I also imagined, well, what I'd like to ask you is you point out that some of the early Australian prime ministers were devout Christians and you also, and I want to know, do you think that there was any suggestion that those words were included in these documents as a genuine prayer, a genuine petition to God that we're putting this in here because this is going to actually be important for the future of Australia to make sure it has some form of divine favour?
1: I've learned a lot on this question from historians like John Hurst, who opens his book, The Sentimental Nation, with the astonishing line, I think, that God wanted Australia to be a nation. It's a very bold claim, but Hurst made that argument, I think, back in the 90s. And since then, people like Alan Atkinson in his History of uh, the Europeans in Australia and that third volume, Nation, have really, I think, at least taught me and I think taught many readers and scholars to take a bit more seriously the language of the time, which does, and we have it in our preamble still, that that somehow Almighty God was something to include on the page, not off the page, when it came to articulating the constitution of of, of this new federation. And, I mean, the <laughs> it's a really complicated question about church and state, isn't it? Religion and government—it's uh, very layered, still very contested. But I think and I followed Alan Atkinson in this, I think he was right to draw attention to federation not just as a matter of, you know, regularising railways and kind of dealing with trade tariffs and things, the the more mechanical aspects of bringing the colonies together, but it was an occasion for some kind of idealism, whether it was a correct, you know, it didn't always run in, in, in the direction that benefited everybody. I think we all know that non white people um, were often excluded from the benefits of the new nation. Certainly, Indigenous people usually were. But that there was a sense of um, coming together as a federation as creating a platform, or Deacon put it this way, as a, an opportunity for a more Christ like kind of citizenship. But, I mean, it's an extraordinary phrase. Um, But Henry Parks, I mean, he didn't live to see the federation, but he talked about federation as something that would enable um, a higher form of life, in his words, for the people who lived in this place, but also for Australia as a a potential blessing to the nations around it. I mean, it might sound kind of conceited or hubristic, but there was a sense of idealism that had a religious frame, a religious content even, behind much of the popular move in favour of federation. And as, again, as Alan Atkinson's pointed out in his work, um, churches and clergymen were among the most successful and persistent advocates for a national federation, which just, I think we need to think about it in more religious terms than we've been used to. And when it comes to the preamble, I mean, the early drafts of the Constitution didn't have any kind of acknowledgement of Almighty God. We all know section 116 of the Constitution prevents religious discrimination in various forms, uh, or in uh, very limited, but in certain areas. Um, And so there is a sense in which they wanted to make sure the sectarianism of the era didn't infect the institutions and practices of the new federal uh, federal parliament and the federal polity, but at the same time, a sense that there was a divine aspect to the formation of the federation, and that that came more from the people than from the architects of the document itself. Richard Ely, another historian, has argued that um, it was really a concession to popular feeling that led to the inclusion of those words in the preamble, acknowledging Almighty God. And I think for people who were devout Christians, church-going types, they would have understood a phrase like Almighty God, probably in very Protestant terms on the whole. But I think it was the kind of term that even someone with a a more, um, who'd come maybe from a more... um, classically informed tradition, uh, maybe someone with a deist background, could still take to carry meaning. So it wasn't um, a confined term. It doesn't talk about Jesus. It talks about Almighty God in a very generic sense. So it was a kind of an attempt to acknowledge the divine without stoking the fires of sectarian bitterness.
0: The First World War happens. That's a bit of a chronological jump, but it's happened. Australia is between the wars and then after World War II but before the 1950s and you refer to a lot of war memorials that have been erected and especially the work of Colin Bale who seems to have been a historian who wandered around Australia documenting or keeping a catalogue of all the types of war memorials and a really interesting point that you make is that the actual artefact itself is not normally an obvious Christian symbol might be an obelisk or something like that the however there are often biblical words imprinted on them such as for the greater glory of god or something like that to remember these fallen soldiers who died in europe or the pacific and whose bodies had never been brought home the the point you make and like you to comment on which differs a little bit from i think from what you've been saying about the federation is that the sense here is that the biblical verse is used to demonstrate civic virtue, not necessarily a theological virtue. Could you comment on that?
1: This is really fascinating material, and I found some of the most difficult to write. There are two, uh, two aspects, really. It was Ken Inglis, who studied the Australian War Memorials, and Colin Bale, who studied all the private inscriptions that families wrote for the headstones of their Fallen soldier or son over in Europe. And it's fascinating. When Ken Inglis looked at all the war memorials erected here in Australia, those, you're right, it's about something like 10 to 1 are classical in inspiration rather than Christian. Like architecturally, if you look at a war memorial, there's very little hint of anything vaguely Christian. Uh, And I think, is that because people responded in secular ways, or is it perhaps? that these were products of committees, local committees, normally men, uh, who were trying to navigate still relevant tensions between Catholic and Protestant um, and and some secular people, trying to find a form of architecture and a form of words that didn't inflame um, any of those divisions. Remember, the war was a massively divisive experience on the home front with those plebiscites over conscription. Huge um, industrial unrest. The war was not a peaceful experience, obviously, but certainly not on the home front either. It wasn't a united front here in Australia. And so, how do you articulate the loss of a community in ways that somehow bind that wound rather than stoke it? Might have meant, I think, that a more civic form of language rather than an overtly religious one was the go to option for many of those local communities. at the same time though lest we forget which is you know adorns virtually every memorial comes from a poem by Rudyard Kipling which in turn draws on the Bible it's a phrase from the book of Deuteronomy where the people of Israel are kind of being freed from slavery in Egypt and God says to them in that text lest you forget the god who brought you out of slavery in Egypt it's like don't get too big for your boots don't think you're some glorious empire that can you know is free to run you over the world the way you want remember you were slaves in Egypt and you needed deliverance so that's the kind of idea that Kipling takes up in a poem written in the time of queen victoria and that then is repackaged for australian war memorials so indirectly again and filtered through the poetry of empire we have a biblical phrase, even on those secular memorials. And then another layer is that Colin Bale, who spent months trudging round those cemeteries, particularly in Belgium and France, where so many Australians are buried, what he found is that on those inscriptions, they were they were almost like the one tweet that a family, a bereaved family from Australia, could send and have enshrined as their memorial to their soldier. This wasn't a community effort, this was one family dealing with one person. And so we hear then the results of what families probably discussed around their dinner tables. What should go on his headstone? We'll never see it. We'll never see him. What should we put? It's a much more intimate, much more private, often much more religious uh, response. And so what Colin Bale found in contrast to Ken Inglis and his war memorials was that when it came to the domestic commemoration of fallen soldiers, there was a much greater concern for something like a hope of resurrection or a condemnation of the the violence of war or a hope for, for, for peace or at least for rest and drawing on hymns and Bible phrases much, much more readily than we see on public memorials here in Australia. So, again, it opened up. I mean, I found these very moving things to write about, but the way the Bible could inform at least the personal, private language of grief Uh, was incredibly powerful.
0: No, that is powerful, especially the understanding of that phrase, lest we forget. There's, I want to ask you a question now about a long period of time between about the 1950s and the 2000s. I'm not going to go into too much detail. I've also found these chapters of the book great, the 1950s chapters, the 1960s chapters, great statistics it's presented, Wonderfully, and I leave it for people to read for themselves. The question I want to ask you to comment on it concerns the role of communities in the society. It seemed to me that in the nineteen fifties there was a big increase in churches. There was that that whole idea of the WASPy culture where you can your elitism or your success in society can be tied to a church group, at least for some people. Then in the nineteen sixties there was a, a cult of culture. And people left churches, but they also had this, this other sort of community group. And another point that you make, which I found very interesting, is currently still, the it seems that the, the churches that have the strongest percentage of Sunday attendees are often immigrant churches. So there are the various Orthodox churches. And some other churches you reference, there's an Indian Christian church, or I think Church of St. Thomas you mentioned, and the Maronite Christians and the Coptics they seem to be able to adhere to keep people within their church every Sunday. And I wonder if that's also to do with the church also being part of a larger community. Could you comment on the role of communities with churches?
1: Oh, that Oh, That is so fascinating to me because, I mean, so much of my book is about the Bible in settler colonial society, its associations with Britishness and particular understandings of what a flourishing British society might look like. And then we do obviously have this transition to a much more diverse and textured demographic here in Australia. And so what does that mean, not just for the churches, but for the Bibles that people encountered? Uh, And that is an absolutely fascinating story because, in a sense, the globalising Bible that I mentioned at the beginning, the Imperial Bible, is forced into new forms. The globalising Bible might... um, is is much a, a much more multicultural thing. We find communities reading it in Korean, in Chinese, in uh, the languages they bring with them from their homelands. The liturgies of those different kinds of Christianities are, um, you know, they're very varied. Um, the role of the Bible in the life of worship, the patterns of family relationships, all those things have a texture that wasn't there before the the rise of multiculturalism. Um, and I think that that. That's one of the things that has transformed Australia and transformed the cultural implications of the Bible here in this country. But in terms of, in terms of community, one of the big shifts we've seen is that we're very commonly to grow up in Australia involved some kind of socialization into a way of thinking or being in the world that was, to some extent, informed by the Bible or at least the dominant readings of the Bible that prevailed in Australian society. that That is no longer norm the norm. And again, that, that raises questions about socialisation and community, but also about biblical literacy. Who even reads the Bible anymore? Is it becoming more of a religious text because Bible reading is retreating into a church practice when it used to be a more general social practice? I think those are big questions, but another shift alongside this, of course, is that the whole way we read has been revolutionized, Um, obviously during the digital revolution that we're living through now, but even prior to that, I mean, Robert Menzies, you know, the kind of the king of the 1950s, so to speak, um, is a great example of this. His grandmother, so at the turn of the, the 20th century, had four books at home, the Bible, the Presbyterian hymnal. Pilgrim's Progress, and then a book of legends written by a Presbyterian minister. Mm-hmm. And like your whole life, you could just devote yourself to four books and read them deeply, intensively, and you'd be very, very familiar with them. So it was a kind of drill down in a few texts kind of way of reading. But by Menzies' time, and even in her lifetime, what people were shifting towards an extensive way of reading rather than intensive, where you read lots of things, but maybe only once at best twice. And so you get a, a and we we live with this now, don't we? Um, But one of the implications is that um, reading of all kinds, and certainly that kind of deep dive intensive reading just became a much less common cultural practice in relation to the Bible, but in relation to any kind of text. And you could argue, and I kind of almost did argue this in the book, that the Bible as a religious text has almost stood up better as a focus for intensive reading than any other text of the the 20th century here in Australia. It's, it's, there are still communities that treat it as a divine word that bend their lives to what they take to be its vision of the world. And that, I think, will remain part of the texture even of a secular nation, which is why I think it's worth retaining some kind of biblical literacy, at least on a civic level, so that, you know, civic friendship across difference, across religious diversity can remain possible.
0: Now we have to wind up soon, but there's two questions, there's two points I want to ask your views on. The first is reading the last sections of your book; it brings the brings the, the book up to date to modern times. And one thought that I had was it's almost a misnomer to say someone's lost their faith, as in the sense that they no longer have any faith at all, but rather they they've just moved in a different direction, not necessarily an illegitimate direction; it's just a different direction. And the point which I I loved was. the the last sections of the book begin with Nick Cave songs and referring to all these religious references he makes. And then there's references to the Australian artist Reg Mombasa and his Australian Jesus, who's like the the sort of big Lebowski-type looking character in all these classic Australian settings. And you you have some nice insights into what those works show. And then you refer to the and Nine execution of Andrew Chan, who was a, a shot for having drugs with him. And the point that, that comes across to me is that these show that, one, the people in the community who've engaged with these are, are interested in deeper questions because these all refer to deep issues. And secondly, and I think it's important in what you just said then, the, the knowledge of the Bible still provides a foundation to have those discussions, even if no one involved in the entire discussion at all actually goes to a Christian church.
1: I really enjoyed pursuing um, that big question of, okay, so the churches have been emptying out. It's not normal anymore to grow up (laughs) like I did with, you know, memory verses around the dinner table if that ever was anything like normal. And so how do people encounter the Bible in early 21st century Australia as when, you know, 90% of people don't, don't go to church? And I think the role of the arts, uh, the way it's taken up in those examples you've mentioned, is one of the main sites, I think, for substantial biblical engagement and reflection, certainly among um, some of our most creative minds. I mean, the other the other place uh, that we see a lot of it is in um, secondary education and the boom, the massive boom in Christian schools and private schooling generally. Australia has one of the highest rates of private secondary schooling in Um, the OECD, and the majority of that is church-affiliated. And so, in a way, the chapel service for teenagers has probably, to some extent, replaced the Sunday morning service, firstly as a source of social capital, but also as a place of Bible exposure and engagement. And I think, for me, this troubled any kind of simple narrative of what secularisation might mean or involve. I was interested there is a shrinkage, a massive shrinkage in exposure to the Bible um, that's related to a decline in kind of Christian identification and participation. But at the same time, there are transformations. And I was curious about those because I'm not sure we know yet where they're going to go. I mean, the huge rise of Pentecostalism around the world, but including here in Australia, um, and the particular hermeneutics that Pentecostals are in, I mean, they're diverse, but that are associated with Pentecostalism are going to become very relevant, I think. and I wanted to kind of at least kind of raise the question or at least suggest that it is an open question of where this is going to head. Um, I've forgotten the second part of your question, Beat. I'm sorry.
0: No, that was the comment that the Bible itself still has a role in these people who aren't Christians using their They still have an imagination that yearns to understand more about the world. that's not just scientific. And there's...
1: Well, I think taken even as literature... I mean, it's, it's an ancient text. Generations, communities, people from all kinds of cultures have found something worth their time in when they have attended to that text. And so I think obviously for people of faith, it's still a very vibrant, life-changing kind of th- text to dwell with, to, to pray through, um, to worship in light of. I mean, that that is a still a big deal for a section of the Australian community. But yes, I think as you suggest, even as a work of literature, um, it still has its compelling aspects. And, yeah, I think you only need to listen to Nick Cave's back catalogue to realise how, I mean, he goes from a kind of very hissing and spitting and vengeful God in his early days with the birthday party right through to absolutely devastating questions about the silence of God in the face of the loss of a child in his more recent work. Uh, it's you can't pin down a guy like that, obviously, or even his relationship to the the scriptures. But he's written on the Gospel of Mark with an eloquence and an insight that you know has nothing to do with kind of um a theology degree, but that cuts through to something very intensely human. And and I think who are the prophets in Australia today? You might find them in a pulpit, but you might find them on a stage or in an art gallery. And I think we need to th- once we think about the Bible as cultural property, um as a text beyond the religious without losing sight of the religious aspects, whole new questions and perspectives open up, which is what I was hoping the book would do.
0: Mm. Now, last question, and you only need to comment on this. I don't expect you to know the answer. The You have a great part in the book that refers to the way in which the Bible was translated into Aboriginal or Indigenous languages, that Indigenous art started adopting the Bible in a way that didn't present Jesus as a man living in Florence in the fifteen hundreds, <laughs> and it it which was obviously fantastic, I imagine, for those people. But the comment I'd like you to the point I'd like you to comment on is: it's true that in Australian churches, Jesus often appears as a white man with longish hair, like the Australian Jesus in the Reg Mombasa paintings, and then to adopt him to an indigenous perspective. It's not as though Jesus gets put back into Palestine. Jesus becomes an indigenous representation. So it's almost as though the Bible, to be understood, has to be understood culturally. It can't be understood outside of culture. I wonder if you think that's a legitimate comment and what your thoughts are on that.
1: I mean, I'm not a theologian, as, as I've already disclosed, but even on a plain reading, I think the Bible... Being a a Bible, as in literally a library, that's what Biblia means, is a composite text with multiple voices, even in its original forms so far as we have them. It's multilingual, it's multi-voiced, and it's self-aware about its own cultural situatedness. And we get commentary even in the texts that now comprise the New Testament on questions of cultural translation. What happens when you take this idea and repot it from a Jewish community to a Greek one? I mean, so much of what's now the New Testament is concerned with that question. So a sense of cultural adaptation as a live element of working through the significance of the the events that it describes is present even in the biblical text, which I think it's quite a remarkable thing that gives some license to, uh, I think, a very distinctively Christian idea that as God's word, which is how Christians have understood it, it can be legitimately expressed in multiple languages, um, that that translation doesn't undermine its status per se, which is which is an astonishing thing to think and to claim, and yet underpins the huge globalizing influence and and permeability of the Bible. And so, in a way, the indigenization, if you like, of the Bible by uh, Aboriginal communities is is unremarkable because it's always been part of the story of the Bible. Um, And at the same time, for this place, for our community, for for the people who now occupy this part of the world, it's absolutely crucial to, I think, revisit um, the imperial qualities of the Bible as it was first transmitted here and rethink, are they workable, beneficial, or are they toxic and need to be discarded as we face the 21st century and there's a 200-year history now of Indigenous theology and Indigenous hermeneutics relating to this text. And it's not mainstream. It's not the thing that's always being discussed in churches on Sunday mornings, but it's a distinct and important, I would say, aspect of our intellectual life as a society. And and I think there are still urgent questions that haven't been answered yet that Indigenous theologians have been posing for decades about the morality of European colonization about common humanity and shared dignity across racial divides. Those kinds of questions I think remain important. And for me, Indigenous theology and listening to Indigenous theologians is a really fruitful way of dwelling with those questions as a citizen now.
0: Thank you for your time and coming in today. It's greatly appreciated. We'll have to wrap it up. The book has so much more in it. It just it's as though every couple of pages is can be a new essay or a new discussion or a new debate or a new fight at a dinner party, it will never end. But it is very well worth reading. It's called The Bible in Australia by Meredith Lake. And Meredith, again, thank you. Could you let also let us know what you're focusing on now?
1: Well, I mean, I've opened up a can of worms a bit mm-hmm. <laughs> with this book. Uh, but as you mentioned in your intro, I'm working at the ABC now, the national broadcaster, I guess, in a way, trying in a different way, a different format to bring to the surface things that often in our culture are difficult to talk about and to, to make visible, but also to take seriously what the devotional life might entail. That's obviously not confined to Christianity um, and to, to actually take the time to listen to people's stories on that point. So that's the great privilege I have at the moment. Um, being a listener to this kind of stuff. um, In terms of writing projects, uh, you'll have to stay tuned. Um, But as soon as the next thing's finished, you'll be one of the first to know.
0: Great. Thanks again. And the book, The Bible in Australia by Meredith Lake, 2020 New South Books Publishing. Please get that and please have a listen to Soul Search on the ABC, which is an excellent book podcast if you are interested in the types of issues Meredith has been discussing today. Thank you and I will speak to you later.